I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We're located on the web at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. For all my listeners, just a quick pitch for my two other podcasts. If you like science fiction and fantasy, check out the podcast Full Contact Nerd, also at fullcontactnerd.com. And if you like space, commercialization, and exploration, check out the podcast Spacewalks Money Talks, also at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Thank you. I'm speaking with author Ed Derrick, author of The Warriors of Anbar. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So first, tell me, how did you get into um, studying about and writing a book on this subject? Well, I first started following this particular battalion, uh, 2nd Battalion of 3rd Marine Regiment. They're based out of Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, Marine Corps Base, Hawaii. Uh, I started following these guys in uh, March of 2005. I went to the Mountain Warfare Training Center, a very important uh, DOD facility in uh, Eastern California where... They, uh, they really toughen up people in the Marines and other services. It's a joint uh, facility there, um, training in cold weather environments, high altitude, difficult mountainous terrain. Um, two, three, uh, that's what they go by, Second Battalion, Third Marines, was their training for their upcoming deployment in support of Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. They were headed to uh, eastern Afghanistan's Kunar province. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, a few different provinces, Kunar, Logman, uh, Nangarhar, and um, 3-3, their sister battalion, was already there, and uh, they're feeding them, giving them a constant feed of intel mm-hmm. and updates and everything for their um, for their RIP, relief in, pre- relief in place, called RIP TOA, Relief in Place Transfer of Authority. Uh, so I was there with them at Mount Warfare Training Center for two weeks, uh, they were there for longer than that, but I was there for two weeks and I, and they invited me to come over with them. Um, so I did that. I embedded with them in Kunar and for a month and a half, uh, September into October of 2005. And then I met up with them again when they came back to Kenyaway Bay. I went out to Hawaii for their memorial and then I linked up with them again in, uh, summer of 2006 at Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center. Uh, McCaxi, it's in 29 Palms, California. They were there preparing to go to what's called the Haditha Triad region in uh, western uh, Iraq's Al Anbar province. And so I was there with them for a little bit, and then we made plans for me to join them uh, in early uh, 2007. And in the meantime, I was writing a book about 2-3, and to a lesser extent, the, the book was also about 3-3, uh, during their Afghan uh, deployment. Uh, they were part of Operation Red Wings, uh, which unfortunately spiraled into disaster very early on when a uh, Navy SEAL four-man uh, reconnaissance and surveillance team was uh, compromised and ambushed, and uh, a uh, immediate react- or quick reaction force helicopter was shot down. So I wrote about that in the book called Victory Point, and also the follow-on operation called Operation Whalers, which was a success. Uh, and so with Warriors of Ambar, this was sort of the sequel to that book. Uh, 2-3 had a very successful campaign overall in Afghanistan. And when they went to Iraq, uh, once again, they were set up for progress and success by their sister battalion, 3-3, who had preceded them in Iraq as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the... When the battalion got there, the area exploded in violence. I can get into detail of that. And they eventually beat al-Qaeda in Iraq, and they helped stand up a successful local police force and a resurgent economy. So it was a very different place when they left uh, from when they arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a great success, and I immediately tried to get a book done about it, but nobody was interested. Um, and thankfully... A little over a year ago, uh, Bob Pigeon, who is a wonderful and a very renowned uh, military history book editor at this great publisher called Hachette, uh, an imprint of Hachette, the Capo Press, which is part of Pegasus Books, wonderful people there, 
and it was great to work with them, and we got it done. We got it out on, uh, a little over a month ago, um, and it wasn't due to be turned in until the end of this month, but I wanted to uh, you know, shift, the, uh, shift the, the TOT to the left, as they say, mm-hmm. by a year. So I got it in and uh, did all the maps for it and all the photography, and I'm very happy with it, and it's been getting great reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But anyway, uh, I guess uh, that's a long-winded way of saying I – I went with. I joined up with the battalion just by dumb luck. Uh, when I went to, I was covering the Mount Warfare Training Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, they happened to be there, and so then I ended just following them throughout the global war on terror. So nice. So, quick uh, logistical question: being a uh, considering that when they conduct, prepare, and conduct operations, that you know there's some classified information in what they do. How were you um, sort of segregated? Like physically, you know, when you were out uh, forward, how how did they, how did you do your work um, in that environment? Well, first of all, I, a great, great, great uh, measure of uh, of the success of this book goes to Colonel Donlin, Donlin, who's a good friend, Jim Donlin. He was a lieutenant colonel at the time. He was the battalion commander, and uh, I wasn't segregated at all. Uh, you know, I wasn't given access to classified information, but he very specifically said, you know, I wanted to see all the companies, all of them, including H&S, that's headquarters and services. You know, and I really just wanted to stay with what they call a whiskey company, which was weapons company retasked as a, to, to operate more as a line company. Real quick, you know, an infantry battalion is composed of a headquarters and services company, uh, a weapons company, and then three line companies. Um, so each company is, is composed of uh, – uh, three platoons. So they retasked, and the, 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 they call it TO, ta- Table of Organization. Textbook, I think, for an infantry battalion is around 835, but when you deploy as a task force like that, a battalion task force is about 11 to 100. So that's how 2-3 deployed, you know, when you include, uh, I, I think that 835 does include Navy, Hosp- Navy or Fleet Marine Forces, Corman, FMF Corman is a Navy hospital Corman who is trained to be attached to a, a, a Marine Corps Victor Battalion. Victor mm-hmm. meaning you know, a battalion that's capable of going into war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so but it's, it was about 1,100 strong, including female Marines who were there very much in the fight. Uh, they were called Lionesses, Lioness Marines, so, mm-hmm. you know, for cultural sensitivity, for, uh, you know, searching at intra-control points and vehicle control points. But uh, I was not segregated at all. Uh, I've never been segregated. Um, I, my second uh, embed to Iraq, which was not with 2-3, it was with the 2nd Marine Air Wing Forward. I was there to, as a photographer to uh, photograph for a Smithsonian's Air and Space Magazine. It was called Air War Iraq mm-hmm. to give a snapshot, you know, or snapshots, photographs of, um, you know, a Marine Air Wing at war. And so the general, you know, in charge of that air wing said that in order to accommodate me, and I had to sit on briefs, which are classified, secret, not a big deal. But so I was given temporary clearance. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Hmm. Uh, and I thought it was sort of made up on the spot. But he sent out a, a memo saying he can sit on these briefs. He has temporary clearance. And so I found out later that apparently there is such a thing as that. Hmm. Kind of on a need-to-need basis. But. You know, it was basically to coordinate photo shoots, uh, you know, during air operations. You know, when you're in a war zone, it's, it can be a little tricky, mm-hmm. a little dangerous. You know, with multi-million dollar aircraft flying around or loaded with uh, live munitions. But uh, so I've never been segregated. Nothing's ever been kept from me. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was always no one's going to give me classified information. You know, that's illegal. Um, professional, that never happened. But. You know, in terms of just my, it was it was like hide nothing. There's nothing to hide. It's like this is this is life. You know, this is life in a deployed infantry battalion in in Iraq. So you see it all. Mm-hmm. So I was, and Colonel Dolan deserves all the credit for that because I just wanted to hang out with Whiskey Company. Mm-hmm. So my friends friends that I had made in Afghanistan, and he's like, nope, you know, you're going to see everything. Mm-hmm. So he, I consider this book a tremendous success and. A huge part part of that goes to uh, Colonel DeHolland. Mm-hmm. What time period again? Just for the listeners, what time period are we talking about here? 
this book covers September uh, 2006 through April of 2007. And I was there for about, about a month and a half, two months in uh, February, March of 07. But the book covers the entire deployment. The really harsh part of the deployment was at the beginning. They really, they uh, turned over officially uh, from 3 3 uh, on September 24th of 2006. And that was the start of Ramadan. And there was what AQI or Al Qaeda in Iraq called the Ramadan Offensive. And it wasn't so much a coordinated military campaign as much of if it was a, a very vociferous call to um, very violent arms. So they went all out against the um, against the battalion and the locals. Anybody suspected of even you know being remotely nice to members of the battalion. People need to realize that AQI very much was an invading force. It was not an organic uprising. Hmm. So. Interesting. So considering, so I, I was able to read some of the book. It's a very, from what I read, very smooth and easy read, but very informative, um, very engaging. Um, but considering all the different angles you could have come at the subject from, um, mm -hmm. how did you uh, focus, how did you determine what you wanted to focus on? I wanted to focus on the Marines and themselves and on the sacrifices that they made and the ultimate victory. Um, 23 members of the battalion were killed. Uh, there were other members of, the, of uh, other attachments who were killed as well. Uh, and it was a very tough fight. You know, and these are 19, 20, 21-year-old Marines who are making life and death decisions, not day by day and not even hour by hour, but minute by minute often. They're seeing their best friends get killed, blown up. They're picking their pieces up, put them in a bag, and then going back and taking care of the necessities at these very austere four operating bases, getting a few hours of sleep at best, and then they're going right back out, and their mission there was to, A, get rid of AQI, and, B, help stand up this, this area to, 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 so it could be the way it was before AQI came in for this war. And so it, it's called a counterinsurgency or COIN, and the Marine Corps... Um, they are the ones who literally wrote the book in the Small Wars Manual, and they continue to write the book. Uh, literally, they wrote the book and figured it, and they continue to write the book, you know, in, in our modern wars. And so you got these guys, these these young Marines, um, you know, and they're, they're staff non-commissioned officers and, you know, platoon sergeants and, you know, the lieutenants that are out there running around all, you know, all hours of the day and night and taking casualties or taking contact. And their number one reason to be there, their mission was for the people of this area, not for themselves. So it's a remarkable story of selflessness and sacrifice. And they won. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the incidents, the SIGAX, they're called SIGAX, significant actions, went from over 300 a month to less than half a dozen a month, fell off the map. 2-3 um, lost 23 members of the battalion. Prior to them, 3-3, three, three, I believe they lost 12 of uh, 325 who was there a year before um a year before 23 came in um third battalion 25th marines they were a uh, reserve battalion they lost 48 members 46 marines and two attached navy hospital corpsmen or a fleet marine forces corpsmen and that number is the greatest in all of the global war on terror for the entire marine corps for any one you know infantry battalion and I believe for any unit, hmm. uh, and that that number is only eclipsed from the uh, I think it was October 1983 Beirut bombing, Beirut Lebanon barracks bombings, mm -hmm. where 220 Marines were killed. That was uh, the 15th. They call it a MU now, Marine Ex Expeditionary Unit, but back then they called it a MAL, Marine Amphibious Unit, uh, Battalion Landing Team 18, BLT 18. Uh, but that, and so the, this, I paint that picture. It is a very violent area that not a whole lot of people knew about because it was way out in the desert and all the focus was on Baghdad and to a lesser extent Fallujah and Ramadi. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to see that type of violence and then after 2 3 was there, 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines came in and they didn't lose anybody. They, there was no KIA, not a single death. 
and that's how dramatic it was. It went from 325 with so with more Marines dying than any other battalion in the war in wars in Afghanistan or Iraq uh, to nobody dying. Hmm. And even more importantly, you see people, the locals, come out. You know, when they showed up there, it was a ghost town. It was this darkened ghost town where locals wouldn't couldn't look at the Marines. They anybody who helped uh, American forces, you know, during three three's tenure, there I think there was a, and it wasn't just when three three was there; it was prior battalions as well. I mean, they anybody who helped out the Americans, they would kill them, their families, and decapitate them and put their heads on posts, mm. you know, at major intersections. I mean, it was a bloody, horrible time. And uh, afterwards, I mean, they had ice cream in the streets. Locals would stop the Marines on patrols. They'd say, here, have some kebabs. Here, have some ice cream. So it was, um, you know, the, you know, I'm partial to the Marine Corps. You know, I, you know I've never been in the services. Uh, but, I, you know, I spent a lot of time with Marines in training and, and in combat zones. And, you know, you hear this, you'll hear people say the, the finest fighting force in the history of humanity. And I, I believe that. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it. And it's not just one type of fighting, you know, it's not like, you know, storm up Mount Suribachi. It's, it's this type of fighting, which is very different. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Either, there's not one that's more difficult than the other. I guess all out nuclear war, you press some buttons and start praying. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but the, but with, with counterinsurgency, particularly this one was such a violent group as AQI and so determined and so skilled, uh, it, it was. It's a remarkable story. I think the public, um, you know, they get news reports. Oh, you know, and question what what did the U.S. or the coalition do in Iraq um, overall? But then you have to remember there are these localized stories where big differences were made um, that people don't really learn about or understand the importance of. Well, in I asked the Islamic State or the Caliphate or ISIL or whatever you want to call them. Daesh, I think that's what they called themselves when they were around. They're not really around anymore, other than people who, you know, uh, ally themselves mentally with them and kind of go out and try to do their own ISIS attacks. But um, they never retook the Triad region. They never were able to take it over. I mean, everything around them. But, uh, you know, 3-3, they did a remarkable thing before 2-3 got there. They found a guy named Colonel Farouk. And they went, they made this caravan. They worked with some Army Special Forces, uh, what's called an ODA, an Operational Detachment Alpha. I document this in the book. And they went and they found this guy who grew up in, in uh, Haditha, was in Saddam Hussein's Army. And then, you know, he got chased out of there by these maniacs. And so they brought him back. And they said, we're going to support you and stand up, you know, a local police force with you in charge of it. Mm-hmm. And um, so... That's what they did, and that was at the end of three three's time. And two three, you know, essentially adopted him when they took over the AO. And he, you know, he's the right guy at the right time. Um, you'll read about it in the book. You know, he's pretty uh, pretty brutal to Al Qaeda, uh, but they needed that at the time. So, and they, as far as anybody knows, ISIS never never was able to make inroads into Haditha. And that's a good chance it was because of Colonel Farouk. So, so just for uh, relative numbers here, can you give us um, how big is a battalion and you know company and platoon versus the um, how big is was the population of the area they were operating in? So uh, Haditha proper is approximately twenty six thousand people. Uh, the triad is uh, Haditha, and then Barwana, which is across the Euphrates River. And then Haklanea, which is to the south, those are towns. Um, and then they also had responsibility for a little village called Al Bahayat, which is farther south out in the desert. Uh, All together is about 35,000. Now, I'll just go up, you know, in the military, it's, I don't know if that's what they call it, but I call it the rule of three. You, know, you have an individual Marine is a Marine. And then the smallest unit is a fire team. So that's three Marines plus a fire team leader, so it's four. And then three fire teams plus a squad leader is a squad. So now they've just changed around the TO, the tail of organization. So normally that would be 13 Marines in a squad. Now, um, I think it's 15 now. I can't remember. Uh, friends of mine who are in the Marine Corps are going to watch this and 
I'm an idiot. That's fine. Because uh, they've just recently changed things up a bit. But sort of classic, you know, you got 13 Marines in a, in a squad. And then three squads make a platoon. Uh, so that's 39 plus uh, a platoon commander, the lieutenant, 40. And then you've got um, you've some attachments. So I think the classic TO is 42. And you have a platoon sergeant. And then... Um, and then, of course, you're going to have attached Navy hospital corpsmen. So a platoon, deployable platoon, they call reinforced, uh, about, I guess, like 50. And so then you've got three platoons to do a company. Um, but, again, I think an actual deployable company is, uh, is about 200. And um, then, uh, so that's a company. And then three line companies plus a weapons company, plus a headquarters and services company that makes up a battalion. And so that, as we discussed earlier, that's about, I think, table of organization, the classic textbook, I think it's about 835. But a battalion task force, um, that's that's about 1,100, 11 to 1,200, depending. You know, engineers, CBs, um, there's all the administrative, you know, the Marine Corps is its own service. It's the smallest service by far. Um, administratively, they are part of the Department of the Navy. So there's a lot of shared, you know, it's a sister service. It's, uh, you know, especially, you really hear a lot of talk these days. Um, the new commandant, uh, General Berger, uh, his commandant's guidance, um, it's fascinating to read it and to see some of what he's saying on some videos really fascinating for me because, you know, I learned about the Marine Corps. I didn't learn it formally. I learned it by being with Marines in the global war on terror, where you see it much more as like, uh, you know, these extended land campaigns, which the Army typically does. But, I mean, their roots are in, are in the Navy. They're naval infantry, soldiers of the sea. So um, that's um, – there's a lot of shared components between the Marine Corps and the, and the Navy. So – did the battalion have um, any what, what sort of air artillery tank um, support uh, did they have? Did they have anything like that? Yes, the Marine Corps, the classic war fighting construct that the Marine Corps uses is called the MAGTAF, the Marine Air Ground Task Force. The uh, Marine Corps has its own air force. People don't often realize that, but they've got their own uh, tactical capability um, and tactical aviation capability. And it's all very tightly integrated. Uh, they've got, Marines got their own tanks. They've got their own artillery. So um, they will have attachment. They'll have artillery. Uh, well, it depends on how a battalion is deployed. If a de- battalion is deployed in a, in a MU, a Marine Expeditionary Unit. So a MU is composed of, uh, it's all based around the battalion landing team, which is a battalion Marines and attachments. And so they've got the ACE, the air combat element attached to that in the MU. Uh, they've got the logistical support element, uh, and they've got the command element. So I think I'm getting that right. Uh, I didn't think I'd be talking about this. <laughs> Sorry. You should probably know this a little bit more. I've never been on a MU, but um, that's just to give you an idea because Marines have to be able to pick up and go anywhere, anytime, anywhere, any climate place, they say, and they mean it. Um, and so they have to be able to bring with them artillery. They can't, like, wait for the Army. They can't. They've got to have their own aircraft. Can't wait for the Air Force. You know, they don't have B-2 bombers, but they've got Harriers and F-18s, and others are both being replaced by the F-35, which is a wonderful aircraft. Uh, it's it's expeditionary in nature because the, I think it's the F-35B that they fly, which is it's a Stovall short takeoff vertical landing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it can be based on these, uh, um, not the Peleliu, but the, uh, you know, they've got these, um, gosh, I can't remember the name. They're Navy ships, but that's where the Mew goes on. So um, and they're, they, they're, they're, they can be flown out of really austere air bases. Um, you know, forward army and fueling points they can land out out in the middle of nowhere. So, so I'm wondering, did this battalion have um, good access to that kind of support? Um, sure, they were part of a larger um, task force in um, in in the in Al Anbar province. It was called AO Denver. Uh, now, the command structure I have in the book, it, 
it was uh, one meth, I believe, that was there at the time. And then they were they fell under at first uh, regimental combat team seven, and then that was ended up being you know every the command element for the regimental combat team swapped every twelve months, and so they were staggered. Um, so the first part of their deployment it was RCT seven, and then it was RCT two. Uh, and RCT-7, had they were based at Al-Assad Air Base, and that's where the Marine Air Wing was based out of. So uh, they had access to Marine Aviation 24-7. ISR assets, they had Harriers, they had F-18s, um, heavy lift helicopters, medium lift helicopters. Um, there was also some heli- some uh, aviation assets at Al-Takadam, but they were all under the command at a at a, uh, Al-Assad, I believe. So you had everything from Siege 46 which they don't fly anymore. They've been replaced by the MV-22 Osprey. They had uh, CH-53 Deltas, uh, CH-53 Echoes. Uh, At the time, the Echo is the largest, well, it still is, largest, uh, most powerful operating helicopter in the Department of Defense. It's going to be replaced by the Kilo uh, soon, uh, big helicopter. And so they had all sorts of, uh, and then for um, Air Ambulance, Dust Off, Dust Off is a call sign. They had an attachment of, uh, Army Blackhawk helicopters, which did the air ambulance service for them. So, um, so you had mentioned that uh, the the bulk, the really heavy fighting, had had started at the beginning of the deployment, and you arrived closer to the middle or end, say. Um, right. So I know you know near the end of of the coalition's time in Iraq, you know a lot of people in the military and public were saying, you know, what what were we doing there? You know, what was the point? But when you were there in sort of relative early days, what impression did did uh, did the the battalion members give you? What was their attitude, their morale towards the mission they had? Extremely high. You know, they couldn't have done what they did if they didn't have anything but the highest level of morale. Mm-hmm. They joined the Marine Corps to fight for the country and they loved the Marine Corps. They loved the country. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't like, Oh, we got to get up and do this. It wasn't a victim mentality. It very much was, a uh, we're doing this. We're going to, we're here to win. And that's what we're going to do. That's, that's, that's what their attitude was day in, day out from the battalion commander to the company commanders, to the Marines themselves. You know, they, they you, you can't, you can't survive otherwise. You know, that's, you just can't survive much less win. I don't want to ask about the uh, sort of the details of the, um, the operations they went into because I assume the book people can read the book and, and find a lot of that information. Right. Um, but I am curious what uh, what did you find were the dynamics of the relations between between the battalions and um, other U.S. services with coalition partner forces and mm-hmm. with the the Iraqi friendly forces. Well, I didn't really see a whole lot of interaction with the Marines, um, with, with other services. Uh, I was, I mean, I was on the ground with infantry going out on patrols with, with squads. That's, you know, I, I did not spend a whole lot of time with Colonel Donnellan or anybody at the, at the, at the battalion command level. Colonel, I did spend a little bit of time. Colonel Donnellan was outside the wire almost continuously. You know, that was his office was a, was a Humvee. Uh, so, um, to his credit, great credit actually to do that. Um, and I saw some of the Iraqi police, but, and working with, uh, the Marines in a Haditha. So that was very interesting, but my, I was just, I was just with the Marines, um, day in, day out, just being outside the wire patrolling. It was tough, but you know, I toughed it out. Mm-hmm. So, but I, so that was my visibility was on those day in day out life those guys. So, and the book goes chronologically. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, starts from when they get. Actually, you know, I, I, I. It could have been written longer uh, to include three three. I regret that. I, I wish I could have included more of uh, third battalion third marines time there because they set two three up for success. You know, they really did. They're a great battalion. Uh, and so I talk about three threes time there. I give some big picture overview and I get into the day to day. Um, you know, there was a lot of sacrifice made and I wanted to make sure and give some good detail for all those who didn't make it back. Each one of them. That was a deal that I made with uh, Colonel Donald. We, we talked about it beforehand a few years ago. He was a CEO of Mount Warfare Training Center. 
uh, a few years ago, and I sat down with Tim in his office and we talked about this book. I said, I'm going to keep trying to get it published. I didn't have a publisher for it yet. You know, I'd been trying for six, seven years. And um, he said that I think it's the most important thing is to have this be a you know, memorial to the people who didn't make it back. So that's, that's a key component of this. But it is chronological. How much of the book would you say is an analysis of maybe the strategic, operational, or, or maybe the you know, public perception of what was going on versus telling the story, the day-to-day story of the Marines that were there? Well, I don't get into analysis. I let the reader do, make that up for themselves. You know, I, um, you know, I do a little bit about the strategic overview, uh, the, 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 the Haditha killings, uh, three, one was involved with the, the magazine, the time magazine article that came out about it. Um, AQI running IO information operations based on some of the news reports. And then, of course, the anti-war types back in the States, you know, they, they certainly try to leverage this stuff. And then AQI in part, they tried to use that to further leverage to get the locals, you know, against the American forces there. So it was very complicated. And that was above my head. I mean, and I mean, I'm sure I could understand it, but I just never was exposed to any of that. And for that matter, at the battalion level, those guys are all, including the battalion command, they're focused, not up, that they're focused around them, at the Marines who are, you know, uh, subordinate to them and out on the street fight. Um, there's very little... Um, to my knowledge, that the, even the command of the battalion, I mean, they're worried about the, the Marines. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe up at the MEF level, they're going to have to worry a little bit more. MEF is General um, 07, Brigadier General Command, White, no, maybe Major General Command. I should know that, too. But it's a General Officer Command. Uh, so, you know, they're going to get more political-type stuff, Um they're going to be more uh, less immune to that, I, sh- I should say, um, than, um, than the battalion command. So, yeah. So before we turn towards um, how you did your, your research, um, are there any other maybe secondary issues or other issues you'd like to touch on that the book goes into? Well, I just I wanted to paint a very clear, lucid, real picture of modern war. And I from the reviews I've been getting, I did that. Uh, I, I talked to a lot of people. I interviewed a lot of people from Colonel Dolan, you know, to other members of the staff, to company commanders, and then mostly to the Marines themselves who are, who are doing it. And I think it's important for Americans to to understand these stories, to, to know what really is going on. There's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the modern warfighter and modern wars and and why people do this and the type of sacrifices that are made. And it's just, um, there's a lot there for people. So I hope that they get that, be able to take, get that takeaway, mm-hmm. that greater understanding. So I, I, so looking at the book, I saw that you did a huge number that there were, you conducted a huge number of interviews and you got also official right. documents to um, understand some of the, what was going on better. Um, one right. question so when you're interviewing these Marines, did you ever get into situations where it kind of became emotional because they're talking about some, you know, serious stuff that just happened to them? So Yeah, a lot. I've had it's not gonna mention names, but I had a lot of people crying. And I don't I didn't just interview Marines, I was interviewing family members and it's tough, you know. There's one he was a pretty good friend of mine. I met him in Afghanistan when he was twenty years old and Mike and uh Boy, he he was a great guy, and uh, you know, I met met up with him back in Kaneohe Bay. Met his wife Melissa um, before he went to Iraq. She got pregnant and gave birth when he was over there, and he got killed by an IED. He never got to meet his daughter. And then uh, Gunnery Sergeant Terry Elliott, you know, I I, I met him back in NWTC in uh, 2005, and I didn't see him again until. I met up with him in Abu Hayat, which is in the southern reaches of the uh, Haditha Triad. And uh, he, his son was born on November 10th um, when he was in Iraq. And for Marines, November 10th is a very important date. It's the birthday of the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And how the irony, not irony, but just you know that coincidence of his son being born on the, the birthday of the Marine Corps. Well, Gunny, Gunny Elliott didn't make it back to meet his son either. So... 
Um, you know, there is a lot of, there is a tough, the, 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 it's a story of stories. There's a lot of different little stories in, in this. And it's very, very emotional for a lot of people. I, I've had more than one person tell me they had to put it down mm-hmm. because it's, uh, it's tough, but they can't stop reading. Because right. not because of my writing, but because the story itself is so compelling and real. Yeah, an important story or an important set of stories. Right. Um, so, can you talk logistically about um, doing the interviews? How did you know? Just go through your your research um, track that you uh, went through. A lot of you know, it started out with Colin Bonnell, and he and I sat down and talked and talked, and you know, I came up with like, what I thought would be the best way to do it, and and uh, he. He was great. I mean, he provided me with all sorts of information, the command chronologies, which are the official documents. He got all of them from the history division in the Marine Corps. And that's day-to-day stuff. So I was being able, I was able to get things very accurate uh, thanks to him. And then I talked. Most of the interviews were over the phone. I did some in person. And then for some of the Echo Company Marines, uh, my friend James Stoiter, who was uh, um, one of the Marines that I write about a lot in the book, uh, he was witness to an awful lot. Uh, Echo Company really, they were right there in the middle of it. I mean, everybody was in the middle of it. These guys really took it pretty, pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And so he's a, he's, he runs a, an organic, uh, beef, Wagyu beef ranch out in Colorado. And so there was a sort of powwow of a lot of Echo Company marines. They all met up out there and I came down. There was about 12 of them. We conducted interviews. And so it was great to do the face to face. It was about a year ago. Mm-hmm. So, and then the other, it was just a lot of, in, you know, phone interviews and, uh, I interviewed a guy named Rod Ridley who was part of the RCT. So they were the command above the battalion. Mm-hmm. So I could get the RCT perspective. And I, uh, interviewed, uh, um, he's a re- now a retired brigadier general, but Norm Cooling, who was at the time, uh, 3-3's battalion commander as lieutenant colonel. So I got his perspective and, I got Andy Lynch's perspective. He was India Company uh, commander for 3-3. Uh, got all the, the CEOs of all the, the uh, companies in 2-3. And then all the Marines, not all the Marines, but many of the Marines who were in those, those companies and platoons. So. Did you get a chance, um, did you speak to any Iraqis? Were you able to get a, an Iraqi perspective of, of what happened? Yes, one of the interpreters, I got, I got uh, his perspective, but the... You know, the, the whole idea that by the time these guys were ready to leave, um, you know, how happy they were with what, it, you know, him getting rid of Al-Qaeda, I got with my camera. And I've included those photographs in the book of children running out and greeting Marines. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, some people, some cynical types will say, well, they set that up or something like that. Well, it's nonsense. You know, I mean, they really were happy that they were there and they were crying when they were leaving. They didn't want them to leave, mm-hmm. you know. So, but I photographed that. That's the Rocky perspective, the photographs. Okay. Even though this is a very serious and, and sort of uh, sad uh, story in a sense, you know, because the loss is suffered. Right. Uh, what right. part of the research and, and, and the brutality, uh, what part of it did you enjoy doing the research? Well, I made a lot of really good friends and I friendships with people that I had you know, started in Afghanistan just became stronger. So that was a great part and learning about this and, and, you know, it was a tough book to write. It was a very difficult book to write because, you know, it's, it's just so many people dying, you know, and some of the brutality and that, you know, I write about that, that the Marines witnessed, um, you know, that AQI was doing to children, you know, and women and, you know, men, it, but children particularly, I mean, they were, weaponizing children. They were making children into bombs, blowing them up remotely. It was horrible. Can can you think of anything more horrible than that? Yeah. Uh, Nightmarish. So, but just, I I mean, it's always good to get a story like this out. So I was, it was almost more of a relief when we got it done. Mm -hmm. You know, I say we because it was an effort, not just by me, it was an effort by Colonel Donnellan, by all the company commanders, by all the Marines, Everybody put something into this. You know, I'm just the fortunate one to be able to call myself the author. You know, Jim Donnell also wrote the four and he did an amazing job of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I, of course the, the publisher and that, you know, that's all great. 
it's it's just uh, I just think the best part of it is getting knowing that we've got it out there by a great publisher that's going to have this around for in a hundred years you'll be able to get it and and it's there it's part of the historical record at this point so that's 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 worth it that's what's worth it because you know there's a lot of people that this it means a lot to um, and their families to know that you've got um, you know, there's all these these stories about you know these very lionized, very um, exaggerated war stories that come out, and they're just not realistic. And this is a realistic one, and the, and the people who are involved in it are very appreciative, and that's the best part of it for me. What did you find that was most surprising when you did this, the research for this book? Oh, gosh. Um, I think the sheer brutality of HQI, you know, killing children, and not just killing children indiscriminately, but intentionally killing them, mm-hmm. you know, intentionally using them as weapons because they knew that the kids, you know, like the Marines, they saw that. And so they would, they would, they made IEDs out of children, riding bikes. You know, I mean, that, that was, that I couldn't, I couldn't even, I still can't fathom that, how anybody could do that. Yeah. It's, un, it's unfathomable to me. Yeah. It's a level of evil that, uh, Yeah. Again, that's the word I would use. I can't fathom it. I can't understand it. Was there a question or was there an issue you came across that was particularly difficult uh, to research that um, that you were trying to get an answer for? And maybe you did or maybe you still wonder about. Yeah, there's one. Um, there is some friction at the RCT level. Um, and I'll leave it at that. I think people, you know, in the book I talk about uh, there was uh, the, the commander of RCT-7 mm-hmm. was um, he didn't make things really easy. And this doesn't come from one source. It came from every source, including at least one within his staff mm-hmm. that he didn't make it easy. And I reached out to him uh, and he he didn't answer me. I reached out to him three or four times. He answered me once and then I sent him questions and I said, I want to talk to you. And mm-hmm. I, I think he knew that uh, maybe in retrospect that he didn't treat some people subordinate to him as well as he could have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you, you know, it affects that, that you, when you're over there in a command situation, you know, like Colonel Donald, I'm not speaking for Colonel Donald at all. I can just, you know, you know, wondering out loud, but I can't imagine how tough that's gotta be mm-hmm. to fight a war like that, you know, where you're fighting an enemy that's making children into bombs you know, and to, and then you want to get your resources for your Marines mm-hmm. and you're, you're having to, you know, now I will say, uh, Colonel Clarity, who came in as RCT two, um, who's now a Lieutenant General, he's the, the commanding general of, uh, 3MF and everybody has great things to say about him, including me. I met him briefly and he, came out and he, he really, he provided the battalion everything that they needed. So, but his predecessor, unfortunately, um, a, there was friction. He created friction. Clarity was, was extraordinarily supportive and a big part of the success that they had. Mm-hmm. So, um, I unfortunately didn't get to interview, uh, Lieutenant General Clarity, uh, for this. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had enough information about what he had done there and this kind of support that he had given the Marines supported to him in the area of operation. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's about it. Were there any, uh, um, ribbons or awards or, or any recognition given to the units, to the battalions for what they had done? Or was it just another day, you know, another half year's work or whatever, you know, and move on? Well, you know, it, it was seven months deployment and plus about another six months prior to that and, and work up. Uh, and, you know, they, they do it because that's their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Tracy, the commanding officer of Echo Company, Company E, uh, he was awarded the Leftwich Trophy, which is one, uh, infantry, I believe company commander a year is given that. It's a very, very, very prestigious award. And that was given to Matt Tracy for this deployment. Mm-hmm. James Stoyter, who I mentioned previously, who was one of uh, Matt's uh, Marines, um, he was the 
uh, Marine of the Year for third Marines, uh, I believe. Yeah. And so there was quite a number of, of Purple Hearts that were awarded. And I'm not sure I didn't – I've never been a, a big on awards, not that I, I think they're important. It's When I say I've never been big on them, I don't pay that much attention to them. Mm-hmm. I pay more because some people get them and then some people who could maybe should have got them, didn't get them. Mm-hmm. So I, that's why I don't focus on that so much. Mm-hmm. So, I, I focus. It. I focus on the actions, regardless of if they were awarded anything for their actions or not. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to say it. Yeah, definitely. So, what do you hope, um, apart from being a story of of these battalions of this, what happened there? Um, what do you hope the book will do? Oh, I just want people to both in the military and who are interested in the military, who might get into the military or people who are interested in it and you know, who never will get into the military or somebody who knows somebody, they just understand the type of people that go into the Marine Corps and do what they do for this country. Mm-hmm. This is a type of sacrifice. Everybody who goes into the military may face this. You don't know that if you're going to face this or not, if you're in the Air Force or wherever. I mean, you may be attached to an infantry battalion. And so it's really important to see the type of, uh, really, I mean, this is as, as, you know, as great of people as you can get that make these type of sacrifices. I mean, life is hard. This is a hard life. Mm-hmm. But they do it, and I love it. And uh, I just want to get all those. You know, I try to tell the story of the modern American warfighter, the real story, you know, not some, you know, some exaggeration or some, you know, cynically viewed, oh, they're all messed up and all this kind of nonsense. I just, the real story. And I just want people to know that because the portrayals that are out there often are incorrect. And I did my best to portray these individuals and their acts as, as, as best as I could. And I think I did a pretty good job of it. So that's why, that's why I wrote it. I want people to, to understand that and, and uh, learn about it. Was there a lot of information for, you know, books, book length purposes and editing? Was there a lot of information you had that couldn't get into the book? And if so, what, you know, what happens to that? Because that's history. What happens to that information? Well, what I did was, you know, there's so many different stories. And so I had to take the ones and and weave them into the greater narrative that were most saliently uh, emblematic of the, the, the acts of courage and commitment uh, and dedication. So, you know, the ones that are most emblematic, the most representative of the overall story. So, yeah, I mean, this book could have been, I could have written a thousand books. I mean, literally a thousand books, but, you know, about each individual, you know, in the, in the, in the battalion, but there's just, you can't do that. You know, the, there's finite resources of time and the, the, the the publisher has finite resources, so mm-hmm. we did our best to to get the to get the essence. That's what this book is, you know, the essence of, of this experience of the battalion. Mm-hmm. You touched on some of the difficulties you had in getting the book um, finished, just time wise and that sort of thing. Can you talk about any other difficulties you had in getting it finished and published? Um. Oh my God, the publisher was great. Hachette, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, they were they were wonderful people to work with. So it was really easy on that part, and that wasn't difficult at all. I mean, the difficulty was, you know, this is a this is a process that took over ten years, and I paid for it myself. I mean, I went, I, I I'm an independent. I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining about it. I wouldn't have it any other way. It's you know, you got to put some money up front, and you got to put time, and you got to risk your life. You know, I mean, it's and. You know, I carried with me lots of cameras and film, and and it was, uh, you know, I, I it was a great experience. It's one that I won't ever do again. Um, you know, being in that environment, um, but so it was a hard, it was a long fight, and we got it done. Got the whole you know, mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. So, what's your uh, next writing project? Um, I'm working on an article right now for the New York Times uh, about Operation Red Wings which was the subject of my book, Victory Point. Mm. Uh, I am, I write um, articles. I'm a contributing editor to Smithsonian's Air and Space Magazine, an absolutely incredible magazine. I'm very fortunate to be, you know, 
frequent contributor to them about unmanned aircraft systems. I write about a bunch. I've written a bunch of stuff for them, but uh, and I write for a magazine. I'm a contributing editor to a magazine called Weatherwise, which I've been writing for for, for gosh, almost twenty twenty four years now. Hard to believe. Um, and uh, and then I have some other other book length projects that I'm on which I'm working. So. Where can people find uh, find you on the on the web? Do you have social media or anything like that? A web page? Yeah, just just Google my name, Ed Derrick, and my website's d a r a c k dot com. Hmm. Um, you know, I have all this the all the social media stuff pops up if you just type in Ed Derrick and Google uh, Instagram. And you know, I I'm not a big social media user, but I like people to be able to get in touch with me any way they're comfortable. Some people are comfortable messaging through Instagram, so I've got that. Some through Twitter, so I got that. Some through Facebook, so I've got that. Some by email, which um, kind of funny. It seems almost old fashioned now, email. <laughs> but uh, you know, people use it still. Mm-hmm. I even rarely get an occasional letter, <laughs> but actual physical letter. Mm-hmm. So not one just printed out from email either. Mail, mailman, mail yeah. person. <laughs> Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Um, well, I just wanted to thank the battalion for, you know, letting me on board and 3-3 as well and all the other Marines that, you know, helped out with Marines and, and sailors and members of the military who, who, you know, supported this. And I hope that everybody reads it. Uh, it's available everywhere, you know, in all the bookstores, national chain and local bookstores online bookstores like barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com and it's an audio ebook and hardcover so yep warriors of ambar okay cool well thank you thank you thank you for listening you can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title military history inside out that includes apple podcasts stitcher and spotify one great way to support me is to rate my podcasts either good or bad You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar, and on Twitter at warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. Thank you.